Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where every meal is served with ketchup. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. This is Wes. And Todd. Today's episode is sponsored by Cobalt Engineering. Cobalt Engineering, making your dreams a reality. Welcome, everybody. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about Dunkirk. But before that, last episode, I promised that we would tell you why we chose the name The Pestle. Um, And if you haven't figured it out, it's because we like to, much like a mortar and pestle, the mortar holds like corn or wheat or something. And the pestle grinds it up and turns it into flour. So using that same kind of idea, we like to take a film, put it on the mortar, and we're the pestle. We like to grind it up and see what it's made of. And I guess in doing so, we turn it into something else less healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, we're not the whole delicious food. We are are the after effect. (laughs) That was that was nice. I liked the way you put that. Thanks. <laughs> the goal is always is to find some kind of insight into the movie making process. Or at least that's my goal. Right. Uh, but in doing so, we want to make sure that we don't give any spoilers away. Uh, that is a pet peeve of both of ours, especially Wes's. And so we want to make sure that if you haven't seen Dunkirk, please uh, uh, pause this and come back to it later after you've had a chance to watch. Um, there, we're going to dive pretty deep into, um, some very specific aspects of the movie that will give a lot away. I mean, yes, it's a historic movie, so you probably know the outcome, but there are some twists and turns throughout the, throughout the film, uh, that we don't want to, um, we don't want to share if you're not ready to hear them. So. Amen to that. And on that note today, we're going to be talking about, uh, the artwork, Todd had some interesting insights, and we'll touch on that at the top. Um, we're also going to be discussing the enemy, along with the nature of tension and the ways that it shows up in Dunkirk. And I also want to touch on Nolan, the way he loves to give context. Um, he's an interesting filmmaker that obviously I have a big man crush on, so <laughs> can't help it. <laughs> hey, we both have men crush crushes in this film. Ooh, good point. Yeah, mine is Hardy. Hey, hey. Big Tom Hardy. Big, huge, huge, huge fan of that man um, as an actor. Uh, I mean, I'm sure as a human being, too. Yeah, hey, not judging. Right, right? Yeah. You know, he used to be a, a, um, a heavy in alcohol and drugs. Really? Yeah, yeah. And then he, he, I don't know if he got off at first and then became an actor. I'm pretty sure just just watching his, his early work, he was probably still on drugs. <laughs> I mean, if you look at uh, Steward of Life Backwards and mm. uh, Bronson, uh, I don't know how you could do those roles n- Comes sober. Comes a little too natural. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure. But um, if he was sober during those, he's an even better actor than I think he is. And he's a fantastic actor. My favorite right now. So nice. Uh, so we'll start with a quick synopsis of uh, of Dunkirk. Um, so it is a historic film, uh, allied soldiers from Belgium, um, the British empire and France are surrounded by the German army and evacuated during a fierce battle in world war two. It's written and directed by Chris Nolan, uh, not with his brother this time. And it's starring Tom Hardy as Farrier, the pilot. Is that pronounced right? No idea. Okay. Let's just say (laughs) it is. Uh, Mark Rylance as Dr. Dawson, uh, the boat volunteer. Mr. Dawson. Mr. Dawson. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, Man, I love that guy in this film. Uh, Kenneth Branagh as the Commander Bolton. Uh, Cillian Murphy as the Shivering Soldier and Harry Styles as Alex. Yeah, that gave a little bit away. Yeah. Right there. (laughs) We told you about spoilers. Uh, that was a surprise that I didn't quite see coming. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. So we saw this 
in IMAX, which was incredible. But before the movie even started, you had you turned to me and you're like, "Dude, you, what did you think of the uh, of the of the art logo?" And then you j- jumped right into some thoughts on that. The, the I said that to you. Yeah. Oh you, yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. My first my first thought was. Um, when when I saw the trailer, uh, it seems bigger than life, you know, and, and the movie just from the trailer and and you watch it and you hear it and you think, you think this is going to be this epic film. Right. And, and then they do this kind of like masking thing with the, with the title where you can still, you can still see the beach through the, the text of the, of the title. And my first gut feeling when I saw that, and I think you kind of had a similar feeling when I said this to you, you were like, yeah, I kind of felt that too, was that it was just a little cheesy. Uh, not really like... Totally. Yeah, not, <laughs> like not really on par with the scale of the rest of the film, right? That was my first feeling. And I felt that for a while. And I think I kind of still feel that. But that being said, um, one thing I liked about it is that it gives this, this feel of you can't get away from this beach, you can't get away from the this water and the sand, and the you're still with even though you're looking at the title of the film, you're still with these men that are trapped on this beach, uh, and you can't get away from it because it's still masked in the uh, in the in the title. Um, and I don't know if that is what they were going for, but if it is, it worked absolutely. And you also said that uh, not only all of that is true, but it's empty. The ocean is empty. Mm. Oh, yeah, right. There are no boats. Yeah, there's no planes. It's, there's, there's nothing. There's no help. There's no help. Yeah, right. And I thought that was just, you know, absolutely excellent insight. The I had that same initial reaction. I was like, oh, that doesn't really look clean or cinematic. It looks a little, a little hokey. And the more I chewed on it, the more I was like, you know what? But it makes sense because Dunkirk is a very nondescript word. I've never heard of Dunkirk. Um and not that I'm a geography major or anything, but that just doesn't ring a ring a bell to me whenever you say Dunkirk. And so giving the beach also gives texture and like, oh, yeah, that's the movie that takes place on the beach. Um, and now you can start tying in the imagery with the trailer and it just helps you remember what the heck that is, because on its own, Dunkirk to me is just it's just a word. Like right. You, that could be anywhere or anything. Yeah. And so I thought it was just really great marketing on all those levels because Mm of everything you said, especially. Um, But it also helps zone you in. Um, And it it just kind of goes to show you that like sometimes you don't need to do something like grandiose or something brand new to get a message across. It could be something a little, I mean, this isn't the right word, but a little hokey um, uh, and still get an interesting message across but in a way that like, you know, if I was editing this, this trailer, I could do it, right. you know, like yeah. <laughs> that's saying a lot, <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, and it's, and the more I think about, uh, even now thinking back through Nolan's titles, he's managed to do that almost all the way through. Um, I can see inception clearly in my head, that poster of inception where, uh, you have Leonardo DiCaprio, standing in the ocean again, um, looking into a city that's in shambles. Um, it begs so many questions. Um, and it's very reminiscent of the trailer and it all ties in really well together. So that's a, that's a really difficult thing to do. I feel like for filmmakers now to not only make a compelling trailer in a compelling movie for the trailer, (laughs) um, but also to help describe your film put the audience in that seat, in that headspace, capture that mental real estate and do it in a way that also doesn't give up too much of your film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really hard to do. Yeah. That's one thing I thought get out did excellent. Um, not that we're going to talk about that. I'm not going to go into it, but there's a spare few films that I feel like really do that well. And, Mm -hmm. uh, Dunkirk is certainly among them. Yeah. What was your feeling walking or I guess, 
walking out of the film, experiencing it in IMAX? Uh, it's it's larger than life in IMAX. I mean, if you're going to see this film, the first time you see it, you got to see it IMAX. I mean, what, like 70, 80% of it was filmed IMAX? Minimum. I would bet 90%. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there were very few scenes that I saw where the screen was smaller you know, and yeah, and you know what? It jumped out at me every time it did, though. The the switch was so hard, and to me, it even looked. I could tell when it, we were on thirty five millimeter because those are the two film stocks they shot on, hmm. um, seventy millimeter and thirty five. And every time it switched to thirty five, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is not as beautiful as this." <laughs> so why? Here's the question: Why do you think? Though, whatever particular shots they shot in, not I, in seventy. Why? Why do you think they shot those in thirty-five? That's a fair question. There might there might have been some some onset issues that were like, oh, you know, we're out of film or um, something like that. But I think it probably has more to do with where can we get the camera? It's such a crazy big camera and it's really loud. Um, so there, might, I think there were, most of the scenes that I saw took place on the Moonstone, that boat with Mark Rylance. Um, Mr. Dawson. And every time I, I noticed the 35 millimeter, I would say at least half the time it was there and also on the docks, but it might've been, they were ju- just trying to capture audio because mm. there were also dialogue heavy scenes that I noticed. Um, and that 70 millimeter camera, that IMAX camera is so loud that even if you blimp it and blimping it is what you call it whenever you put on kind of a protective blanket um, except for it's it's form fitted to the camera uh, to help deaden this the the sound that it's making so that you can mm. try to get some clean audio, but but it's all film. It's not digital. Yeah, it's, this okay. thing is one hundred percent film. Okay, I was floored. I mean, it's such a visceral experience. Mm. Um, but watching the trailer, you know what? I remember watching the very first teaser trailer. That sixty second clock is ticking. Then halfway through the trailer, they cut to the the soldiers on the pier Mm -hmm. and that one guy looks up into the sky and you can hear that plane slowly buzzing in. Yeah. And then everyone looks up and they duck down. I was expecting massive slaughtering. So that imagery stuck with me all the way through to watching this movie. So I think that was one of the forms of tension for me. It was like, is there going to be a moment when we just see everyone get killed down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all have, I think saving private Ryan and these war films where you see that, uh, constantly, I mean, where the, the bridges, the, the gates open on the boat and suddenly Mm -hmm. it's havoc. Um, and so all of that, I think accumulated to me walking into this theater set to have my heart absolutely broken. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's brutal. Yeah. but we didn't really get that. No. So, okay. Well, l- really quick, I'll finish uh, w- yeah, how I felt please. and then let's get back into that. Um, but I don't want to forget that, but so, uh, so it's, it's like super larger than life. And the whole time I'm on the edge of my seat the whole time. I mean, part of that was, I think the editing and, and the directing, but I think a lot of that obviously was the, the, the fact that the score just didn't ever let you breathe the the whole time. I've never seen a movie that uh, <laughs> that the score played such an important role throughout the length of the film as this. I mean, even when there was silence for the three minutes of the movie where there was silent, where there wasn't a score, uh, it was purposeful. It was like, okay, now it's gone. And your ears are just like, Oh, thank God, you know, because the whole time you have this click, you know, this ticking clock, almost the entire time you have this, this like these undulating kind of dissonant chordal structures that are, that are happening to create this ambiance. And I think it's, it's just to, even though it's told from three different, three different time perspectives, you, you still feel the tension at every in every stage and it's it's to make you as an audience feel as stressed out as any of those people in any of those circumstances uh, might have felt because i was 
stressed the hell out the whole time. I mean, there were some times I was literally sitting up on the edge of my seat physically because I, I couldn't see, I couldn't lean back anymore. I was just like, Oh, what do I do? I can't breathe back here. Okay. I'm going to sit up here now. And, and it, but, and it really stuck with me. Do I think that the film was as good as I want, wanted it to be? No, I, I don't. I think it did leave a little bit wanting. Um, but I did, and and I think when I walked out, I I liked it a lot better than I do now. You know, it kind of like settled. The dust settled for me a little bit, but it's still it still stuck with me, and it still was like very effective in in doing its job for me. I was thoroughly entertained. Could I watch it another three times? And probably not. I could watch it another time, but. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, The Revenant. It just like, oh, my, I, I can't breathe, you know, when I watch it. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's hard to put myself through that that many times. Uh, but I did like the film a whole lot. I'd probably give it a, um, I'd probably give it a 7 out of 10. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm on the same page there. I think, I mean, definitely walking out, I felt like my nerves had just been shredded. Mm-hmm. Because it was, it's an incredible experience. The tension, um, and just like you said, you're experiencing what the soldiers are experiencing. That is part of my problem. It's such a strong experience. I I felt like a little bit of the narrative and storytelling was a bit weaker in some ways. I thought he did some incredible things in terms of experimentation. We're going to go back to the memento days of like, disjointed storytelling and, and, and timelines. And I love that. I love, I, I really do love a little bit of disorientation periodically in my movies. I like having to reorient myself based on a shot. Maybe it's a macro close up or, uh, or it's a Dutch angle, which is, basically means it's a little off, off kilter. Mm. And, you know, I like these shots that catch you off guard and you have to figure out what am I looking at right now? Except he didn't do that. Instead, he did it with the the timelines, right? From the outset, you find out one week, one day, one hour. And you're like, what does that mean? One week before, one week ago? Uh, What am am I looking at right now? And so I love that. I love that you have to kind of piece this all together yourself. And you also had an interesting thought on the enemy. Mm. Yeah, you never you never see the enemy. Even at the end where spoiler, uh even at the end when um when Tom Hardy goes down and and lands on the beach and he's destroyed his plane and they they're coming and they they uh capture him. They're all blurred out like you're you know there's shallow depth of field. You don't see any of their faces. You don't even make out their uniforms or anything at all. So it is always this like silent killer that's coming for you, um, that you can sometimes hear, but most of the time not, um, from, from the very beginning where the, the, the guys in the, in, uh, the, the, in the streets start getting shot at. And the one guy who's, who's just trying to survive the entire film, uh, escapes from, you never see those guys. You never see them when they're, when they're on the beach, you see the planes, but you never see the pilots when they're hiding in the boat on the beach you never see the people shooting at them. You just see the the bullet holes. Uh, you the, when that torpedo shot the the carrier down, you never see where that came from. And that was freak. That that <laughs> moment was really great. So this whole setup has been: there's a silent killer that's coming, that's going to get you, that's going to get you, that's going to get you, um, and you're trying to get away from it, but you don't even know where it is or where it's coming from. And it's at night, and you're on this boat, and the the one guy is on the on deck and you can see you hear hear this and you're like oh my god what is that and then you see it in the water coming you it is such a great moment because most of the time in films you don't get to see that moment right before um in such a way that that a an actual person experiencing it would have seen it you know like maybe if you're if you're in some movies you're on the boat and there sh- it cuts to a shot underwater and you can see the, the torpedo coming to the boat underwater. That's not the perspective. 
the perspective is on deck at night from the lights from the, the boat itself, you can see maybe 30 feet out, maybe if you're lucky. And that's all the time you have. And it was, it was so good. So I love the fact that you never saw the enemy. It was, it was the right call for sure. Absolutely. And you said it really well, uh, like a day or two ago when you were saying that it keeps you on suspense because you never know where they're coming from. You never know where they are. And so you're and just like that, that shot you're talking about with the torpedo, you don't see it coming until it's already too late. So really the only literal enemy we ever get to see on a continuing basis are the, the, the planes, right. That are doing all the dive bombing. And that's exactly what those soldiers are experiencing. And that's what he says in the clip, right? He says, the, the tanks have stopped uh, approaching. And he says, well, why? And he says, like, why waste precious tanks when all you really have to do is bomb them? We're, we're fishing a barrel right now. Yeah. And so that's the only literal enemy we see. And I think that's because this isn't, this is a war movie that is actually more of a man versus nature story because water is the enemy. That's what we're dealing with. So we never see the Germans. Um, water separates them from their home, right? It's a barrier. Um, even in the beginning, water's crashing into the boat. The soldiers are taking cover like they're being bombed. And part of that might be the PTSD kind of kicking in, like you just never know what's happening. But they know full well that's just water because it keeps happening every 20 seconds. The tide pulls out and then crashes again. But they're taking cover like they're afraid of the water. Um, and the pilots crash into the water, right? Uh, it can be hard as concrete mm-hmm. and it can mm-hmm. suffocate you. It can drown you. They're fighting the tide at times and other times they're waiting for the tide as a form of rescue. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a man versus nature story be- because in nature you can't win. You mm-hmm. can't win. You can only survive. That's what all man versus nature stories are really about right. is just surviving it. Um, because there's literally nothing to conquer. <laughs> you can't beat nature. Which he told through the, the, the one guy who was just constantly trying to survive. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like the whole movie. <laughs> Which I never really understood why they were out there in the streets in the beginning. Uh, whenever we open, and that's one of the only two times that you experience any ambient silence. Um, mm-hmm. And the papers are fluttering down. And then bullets start and the tension begins. Yeah. But I'm yeah. like, why are these guys even out here? You know, it's, you know, what's going on over here. Yeah. I'm, this is I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, I think that's the, that's the real enemy of the story is, is water and time. That's their other battle, which is another right. function of nature, I would guess. Um, and as we've said previously in our interstellar podcast, Nolan has a fascination with time. It seems like to, to us anyway, um, whether you're, it's pretty obvious, it's pretty obvious, especially all of his really original works. The non Batman stuff, uh, seems to all deal with time in one function or another. And in this case, he's literally, literally reordering time mm-hmm. in order to create some tension and confusing, right? Uh, some confusion because we get to put it together ourselves a little bit. And it's really awesome because it creates engagement. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you disorient someone who's interested in your story, now you're suddenly you have their attention. And you it, it shows that the the director has respect for their audience. You know, it, it doesn't he doesn't think that like we're st- too stupid to get this. It's like, oh, I got to spell it out for for them. You know, kind of like they do in Transformers. Um it's he's very like like you're going to, you know, I I I trust you're smart enough to get this. You know, you're going to, you're going to get it. I'm not going to, you know, spell it out for you. Right. I'm not going to talk down to you. Yeah. Like a bunch it, of morons. Yeah. I'm going to, you're, you're on my level. Anybody could do this. And it's know. amazing. I was sitting next to, so I've, I've seen this three times. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I know. Well, I, this isn't a movie I would want to see more than once, honestly, at least in theater, maybe again, but it came out in IMAX here in our IMAX theater now only does digital projection. Um, but the Alamo Ritz shows it in 70 millimeter and I'm such a film honk that mm-hmm. I just had to go see it in Does 70. It look better. Uh, it looks still looks incredible. Yeah. Um, I thought the audio was a better experience in the, in the Ritz. Yeah. Um, IMAX is boomy. It's very boomy. And, and I literally missed 
at least half of the dialogue. And it, so, yeah, it was hard. I had some confusion to, in there. I was like, I didn't really understand X, Y, or Z until I watched it in the other version. But I would, the more I've thought about it, I've settled on, I still agree with you. Like the first experience, the way to experience it is still an IMAX because even though I may have missed some of the narrative, that experience is irreplaceable. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you, you can't duplicate that no. immersement if that's a word, um, immersion. Thank you. You can't duplicate that immersion any other way. You can't. And I watched it the very next night in 70 millimeter and I would say 90% of the tension was gone for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew well, what was do, happening. Do you think that was because of the size of the, of the screen or you think it was because you've seen it before? That's fair. I might have to see it in IMAX again to answer <laughs> oh, your geez. question. <laughs> I've created a monster. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it was probably just because I, I, already knew the beats of the movie. Mm-hmm. I had the same experience when I watched War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. Up until maybe this film, uh, that was the most tense I've ever been in a movie theater in my life. Wow. And I wanted to take a friend to see it with me. I was like, man, you got to see this movie. Uh, my buddy Scott. And he came and he had that experience that I had, except I didn't have you it You didn't again. have it. <laughs> yeah. But that was mostly because you'd seen it. Yeah. So in this in this case, because you know the outcomes, you know what's happening, you're kind of ready for it. Mm-hmm. I probably think it's less to do with the screen and more to do with. Uh, I think it's both. Sure. But it's probably more to do with the fact that you've seen it and you yeah. know what's coming up. I'd agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so yeah, they're fighting against time, and so the uh, the enemy is pressing. Right. Fuel is running out. Mm-hmm. The boy needs a doctor, and so every one of the three stories has their own battle against time as well as the water. Mm-hmm. Um, the pilot is obviously worried about running out of fuel and crashing into the water. So right. he has both very immediate, uh, which makes sense. He has one hour in the, that we're following him. And so those have to clash a little bit more tightly, uh, narratively anyway. This brings me into the, uh, the nature of tension in general, I think, lies in maybe in anticipation you have what you know is coming um, and what you're afraid could be coming. And so you're constantly anticipating something one way or the other, and that makes us very tense, along with all the things you already, you already noted, like the music itself. You have like one string at a time just hammering down on you on top of the layer of the, the clock ticking. Any time you have time against you, you get anxious. I get anxious, at least. Um, I think that's a very human response. And then you have all these other interesting audio cues. You know what I loved? Planes being such a huge symbol in this movie, not only of, uh, of, of the enemy, but of, of our heroes, um, because they're clashing in the air. Some of the audio m- reminded me of like a plane propeller engine uh, cranking up or slowing down. Um, you have these very strong noises. Uh, sorry, I'm not exactly. Was that exactly how it sounded? Perfectly. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Everyone listen for that. <laughs> and and it's so much more uh, uh, embellished, obviously. And it reminded me very much of a, of a plane engine. So it felt like they were using uh, sounds of the era and of the war in order to enhance the sound effects. Yeah. You know, they were just constantly pumping in all these various things that were very time sensitive. And it's funny because now we're going to hear that sound effect over and over and over again in all the movies. Wait for about a year and a half from now. <laughs> yeah, right. It's going to be a very strong sound you're going to be hearing. And one of the other things that I liked about the fact that there was just a constant soundtrack was that you never knew when something was actually going to happen. You know, in so many movies, the soundtrack is to cue you that something's coming. Dun it, dun it, dun it, dun it. You know, it's it's here comes this thing, and at the at the climax of that that piece of music, uh, there's the thing. That's right. It's constantly there, and it's constantly dissonant, and it's and it's building, and it's rising, and it's falling, and it's rising, and it's falling, and nothing happens. And then one time it rises, and something big happens or one time it falls and something big happens. So there's no cue, um, for, for, from what I remember, but I, you've seen it three times. Maybe you can I think, no, I think that's spot on. I, yeah. I think that's a great observation that yeah. I didn't pick up at all that you can use this static tension 
cues mm-hmm. to desensitize the audience yes. to for their expectations. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. You're, you're not desensitizing a sense of tension. You're desensitizing mm-hmm. the sense of expectation. Exactly. And so, with that anticipation, uh, you're conce- he's constantly concealing things from us, right? He's hiding information. The enemy, like we said earlier, the fuel gauge. Now mm. we he doesn't know, and so we don't know, and he doesn't know the fuel gauge breaking, and, being shot or whatever in, right. in, the, in Hardy's plane. And then the one opportunity or the one uh, ability to track that goes down. His buddy mm. goes down. That was helping him keep a keep a log of where am I relatively at in my. Yeah. And so every time he increases the uh, the throttle, you're like, oh god, that's throwing us even more out of whack. Yeah. Um, because now we're empathizing with him. Mm-hmm. He can't tell, like, at least he had these constant metrics. He was like, okay, at 13, 37 hours, I had 50 gallons left in my tank. And then at, you know, 14, 20, I had 15 gallons. And so you can start extracting. But when you start messing with all that with the throttle, all of those metrics kind of and, go out the window. And cutting away from him to a True. different timeline. Yeah. And then going back, you just kind of like, I don't know where I am in this anymore. Yeah. You know, so you're totally lost in that. Constantly. But it's interesting too. So not only is he concealing, but he's showing. And so he never, I would say he maybe never foreshadows anything. He literally just shows you what's coming through the the disjointed time. And so you get to see oh right yeah. oh this plane crashed when is but it hasn't crashed in this other timeline yet yeah right um, this ship has sank but it hasn't happened for our guys on the ground yet and so they don't know that they're swimming to uh, a doomed tank right now so it's creating all this other tension by giving you information that the characters don't have yeah and that's <laughs> it's mind numbing <laughs> all these things are happening at the same time as you're piecing it together and you're you're literally on the edge of your seat as we were yeah. um and there's other there's so many other things i have like a huge list of tension <laughs> the opening scene itself takes a very human need which is this guy needs to take a poop <laughs> that's what the very first scene is right yeah. the 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 leaflets come down, the Germans releasing these English pamphlets saying, you're surrounded, you need to surrender. And you get right from the get-go, you have a visual cue along with the text cue. They're, they're telling you, here's your situation, and they literally show you your situation. And this guy's saving them up because he wants them for toilet paper. Um, but then he's interrupted, right, uh, by death. Yeah. <laughs> And he's running home, uh, or at least back to base, back to the beach. He gets there. He gets ready to, to relieve himself again. And he notices, oh, actually, there's, a, there's dead bodies here. The, a guy is burying someone. Maybe this isn't the best time to, uh, yeah. to relieve myself. And, and so we're, we're empathizing with the need to use the bathroom. And that creates a tension because now we have this pent-up thing in us that we're, we're realizing is going unfulfilled. Um, and that also uh, shows the pressure that they're under along the way. Like, there's really no time for yourself. There's no time to to get it together. And I realize it. I probably didn't realize this until the third viewing that that's the Frenchman <laughs> that we see later on. Yeah, getting the clothes. Yeah. I don't know where my head was at. Oh man, pieces of this film. I saw it once and I got that. I know. I think maybe I got it that first time around, but I just didn't pick that. I definitely understood he took yeah. his boots. Yeah, yeah, um, right. I didn't understand. I just thought maybe that's a common thing we see throughout movies is mm-hmm. someone taking someone else's shoes because right. whatever reason, John McClane lost his shoes. Yeah. Um, and so we later find out that that's the frog, right? That's the Frenchman who yeah. they, they're blaming in German to, uh, on being a German. Um, but Which we should come back to because I want to We definitely will come back to that. Yeah. Um, and then from there we immediately go to them on the beach and he hits the deck, right? The, uh, the bombs start dropping. Mm-hmm. I love that shot where he's in the foreground and we have a fairly strong depth of field. I mean, it's not perfectly in depth, uh, but we can see in the distance, the bombs coming and we can hear it in the audio that they're farther away. Now they're closer and closer and closer until, you start seeing guys 
you know, being blown apart and the dust hitting our guy that we're, that we've been following. And that's such a beautiful intention building shot. Um, but they also do some really cool th- stuff with sync- synchronizing the crises that a lot of these uh, disjointed characters are going through. Um, you have the dual rescue of boats that are taking in soldiers, right? You have the big boat, the, the carrier that you mentioned, that takes in the wet soldiers. And you have the Moonstone, that smaller boat, uh, that's rescuing the shivering soldier. And in both instances, all seems hopeful, right? They're all... They're all like relieved. Okay, now we're in a safe spot until they're reminded that there's still peril. Uh, for the big boat, we're inside, locked in, and this guy meets another soldier and he's like, what's wrong with him? And he's talking about his buddy who refused to come inside, uh, the Frenchman that we find out later. And he says he's looking for a quick way out because that guy realized there is nothing safe about being on a boat. We're still in the water. We're still in danger. And on the Moonstone, <laughs> Kelly and Murphy, uh, the shivering soldier, he's like, where are we going? He looks up and he sees the smoke in the background and he, they tell him, we're heading to Dunkirk. He's, and that's when he begins freaking out. And he also didn't want to go down. Uh, he, and he eventually did, but he didn't want to go down under deck. Dead on, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's there's nothing good about feeling trapped a second time. Yeah. Um, and so... And it happens again in the final sequence. Uh, I'm sure it happens many, many times throughout the film, but the ones that I picked out uh, were also the the final dive bomber happens synchronously between the Moonstone and the beach where all the guys have been rescued on the Moonstone and they're heading back. They saved them out of the oil or the uh, the fuel that had leaked into the ocean and caught fire. And now they're they're heading back to the beach or back to back home. And now they have this dive bomber that's setting its sights on them. And synchronously, we're watching that same, that very same dive bomber reaching the beach to attack them. And it didn't occur to me in my first couple of viewings that this is the exact same dive bomber. Um, But he meets his maker because we have that incredible scene. Um, I don't think every moment lands quite the way Nolan wanted it to at least for me anyway um but that is one that just got me all three times i watched this film is tom hardy running out of fuel leaving our scene we don't really know what happens um and then suddenly he just comes back in and blasts that guy out of the water everyone's cheering and it's gotcha oh gotcha knocks me down man what a freaking beautiful uh section but there's tension throughout the entire film with very small tiny breaks in the cloud um one of them was that pilot who crashes and gets trapped he gets freed by the moonstone the guy right right with his little fishing fishing hook mm-hmm. thingy that's the sure technical that's the term. technical yeah, term. yeah. <laughs> he, he gets out and he floats to the top and everything stops and it maybe lasts for 10 seconds but uh everything stops except the water you can hear him floating and he's not even breathing hard he's just relieved he kind of just looks up at him and then it's like you just send right back into the right thick back of it. it just like one one moment of breath yes that oh, i'm okay i'm not okay yeah. <laughs> now i'm really not okay still but yeah oh my god I also think there's a lot of symbolism, obviously. I think that's a, a very Christopher Nolan thing. Um, and But I'm not sure. I couldn't quite... I don't know enough about World War II to really be able to nail down all the symbolism. My very vain attempts at it are <laughs> uh, maybe the water represents the uh, Germans. They're, it's overwhelming. It's powerful. It enters through any small crevice. That was a really big thing early in the war was Germany creeping through Luxembourg, uh, Belgium, I think, mm-hmm. um, as, a, as an entry into attacking Poland. I believe some of you guys are going to be rolling your eyes at me because I, I said it before. I really don't know. I'm not that intimate with World War II history and most of history, uh, truth be told. But there's also something interesting with the water because – George, the, the kid who gets knocked out on the Moonstone, he refuses water that's, that's offered to him, you know, as he's laying there dying, mm-hmm. and then he dies. 
Whereas at the opening of the movie, the young soldier who meets the Frenchman, he's offered water and he takes it and he drinks it um, and they live. So maybe there's a slight commentary about uh, fresh water um, that isn't polluted being a, a saving grace. Whereas maybe Germany represents uh, the salted uh, ocean that, that needs to be uh, avoided, avoided or, right. or uh, purified of some, in some way, um, which would be a, a, an ironic take considering Germany's goals right. and all the, the death that that entailed. Mm-hmm. But fuel also seems to be important. And I don't really know the significance of fuel with, with the UK. Um, to me, maybe it represented maybe the lower power of uh, Britain in the, in the UK. And at the end, Tom Hardy finally runs out of fuel and he gets captured, right? Um, we don't see what happens to Tom Hardy. We just know he needs cap- he, that he's captured and he needs rescuing. So maybe that's uh, emblematic of, of Britain needing help from the Allied mm-hmm. forces. Um, America and Australia or whoever uh, else joined in at that point in the war. And the burning plane seemed to be a very significant image that I couldn't quite figure out. It's, it's one of the final images that we see yeah. right before we cut back to our, our young soldier on the train. Um, and it's very brief, his, his shot. But we stick on that, that burning image of the plane on the beach. Uh, and it seems, I think the, the low-hanging fruit there would be that th- that beach was terrorized by planes. And it's been burned to the ground. They've solved that issue, um, and they they conquered it. Um, or maybe it's also that uh, it represents Britain being burned down in defying Germany. Or it could be that uh, Britain burned down their arch enemy, which was the core of the German attack. I don't know, but there seems to be some really strong uh, symbolism going on in here that I can't really put my finger on. I'm I'm not sure either. I mean, it might just could it possibly be just that that was his procedure and it's just him standing there not you know not fighting getting captured because he know he doesn't have a gun he knows he can't do anything about it sure i, I, don't, I don't know because yeah, I, yeah I, I agree i was you know the way that he like his acting in that scene made it seem like there was something but even there, after but, he exits the uh getting captured in the exits yeah we cut back to the train and then we cut back to the plane just burning on its own with no context other than the beach and the the hillside in the distance, and there's this huge rise in the uh, the orchestra. Um, maybe the sacrifice. Maybe so. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. You know, because another thing, um, actually, a very like a, a cool part of the movie that I or cool uh, part of the um, the screenplay of the movie was when. Um, can't remember if it was Brana. I'm pretty sure that it is. Um, when he was talking to the the army commander, because Brana is the navy command, naval commander. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's talking to the army commander, um, and the army commander was saying, you know, where are our ships? Where are our planes? And Brana just understood, and he said, they're <laughs> they're not sending them because the next fight is for England and the world. Wow, and so you just you, you're acknowledging uh, your fate at that point. Yeah, exactly, you're 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 saying, well, it's it's up to it's up to us and some civilians to save these these guys because the you know the British government isn't going to send our 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 best because they need them to defend the rest of the world. <laughs> like, and so how can you blame them? You know. It, as a viewer, I'm sitting there watching that, and I'm when the when the army commander asked that question, I'm like, "Yeah, where are they? Like, why aren't they sending them?" And then Brana made it very clear that he understood why, and and he would do the same thing. That takes so much, even though he's standing on that beach with all those men. Absolutely, it's. I mean, it's courage and it's it's truth, right? To be able to acknowledge that without any bitterness. Yeah. Oh man, it's easy from our side of the fence. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. But for him and that character to, to acknowledge that point of view is very powerful. 
Mm-hmm. So anyway, I guess my point was that there was a lot of sacrifice on that beach. There was mm-hmm. a lot of sacrifice by the 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 civilians, sacrificed by the British government. I'm they I'm sure they didn't want to leave. Uh, you know, half million or four hundred thousand men on that beach. You know, um, without any very much help. So like, of, of course, there was a ton of sacrifice. But um, and so maybe that's what that symbolized that that plane. That's as good as anything I have to think sure, of. Sure, <laughs> why not? Why not? Um, there was also, to go back to audio and the effects, this goes back to Nolan loves, I think, really loves to give context to every moment. Uh, Effects-wise, I don't have almost anything to say other than watching the scenes with Tom Hardy in the cockpit felt so real. And I think it's because he's adding all these tiny vibrations of the cockpit of the engine that's roaring and in in the air you wouldn't be able to film this perfectly clean shot fincher's very david fincher is very fond in his films of getting these perfectly still car shots where everything is rock steady and a lot of his movies are like that and we'll do a fincher movie in the in, in, in the future but nolan seems less concerned with that than embracing reality he does that with those vibrations, adding all these little imperfections to the shot to reinforce the world that you're in so that you buy into it that much more. He also does it uh, with the sound, the soundscape. I have like there's a shot where uh, you're on the moonstone and you see that that carrier, I mean, maybe 500 yards away and a bomb hits it. But the audio is delayed because that's the way sound works. Right. Yeah. And we acknowledge that as viewers. Um, it's not something that turns us off in a, in a movie that does it, but it's something that, in, that grounds us so much more deeply in a movie that doesn't. Whenever it acknowledges, it takes a moment for sound to reach you. Um, so you see it and then you hear it. And it's this very dedicated uh, aspect of I'm going to show things as they are. And Michael Mann does this a lot in his films too. Bullets and guns sound like bullets and guns. And I I feel a bit of a kinship between Michael Mann and and Christopher Nolan, even though they're they seem to tell very different stories. Um, but I I've always felt like their their audio effects are very, very uh closely related. Yeah, the gun sounds in this film are are amazing. Yes, and they're super loud, uh, which they should be. Right, they hurt your ears, rattle uh, your freaking teeth. The, yeah, absolutely, which they should be, and and it really immerses you. And I love that you brought up the 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 plane um, vibration because it doesn't vibrate when he runs out of gas. Right, it's still. Yes, he's just he's just gliding. And all of a sudden, and the camera is still. And I, I didn't even think of that until you pointed that out. And then I remembered, oh yeah, I can't. It's kind of like when I ride my bike and I'm riding it on on chip seal on the side of the road, and it's just so rough. But I ride on it for a really long time, and so I just kind of feel like that's how it's supposed to be. And then I get onto a flat, like flat, freshly paved surface and it's just like oh my god this is so much better you know like oh this is how a bike is supposed to feel like that's exactly how i felt whenever he started gliding and like there was no vibration that's a really great point because whenever you get to that moment it enhances it so much more now you really feel like you're just coasting on the air i totally felt like that in the film what's going to happen next Mm -hmm. um and also really love the way he locks off and you you mentioned this after walking out um he loves those shots on the plane or on the the spaceship Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. where you can see the wing and he does that quite a bit and particularly in this film he does it to a really strong effect uh because those are locked off shots the camera's not moving the because now you're looking from the point of view of the of the object the plane the boat and it's letting the action come to us the water is going to overtake us so whenever now we're we have that shot on a boat, on a sinking ship. The water's charging at us, and we're tilted over, and we're we're going to meet the water. And it's because of the way they they've set that up. It feels more like the water is charging at us, mm-hmm. 
even though the exact opposite is happening. Yeah, absolutely. And it just adds this surreal moment of, uh, of reality and disorientation slightly, but it's, it's engrossing. You can't, you can't, you can't do anything. You're helpless. It, it, a little bit, and not not in the same way, obviously. But it reminded me of the the hallway fight scene in in Inception. Sure, through all just, the yeah, yeah. Just when when the boat, it, it, so it's locked off. The the camera is locked off in the side of the boat, right? Uh, and yet the the whole ship is tilting into the water. So it looks, but it's locked. The camera is locked off, so it looks like the water is coming in from the left side. Uh, but vertical almost. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're really dis disoriented, like you said, because people are actually trying to swim like down or sideways or whatever it it's, it's so crazy, but it's such like an interesting point of view, uh, uh that you wouldn't normally get. You wouldn't normally get it. And it, so it does all these things all at once. It's something beautiful you've never seen before. It's chaotic because you're trying to orient yourself and you're empathizing with the, inability to move you're not moving and now you're also in the place of these soldiers who are trying to escape and so you feel that helplessness and so all these rush of emotions and feelings are hitting you all at once and it's it's an experience that's what this movie is all about is an experience and going and this is all in 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 his attempt to add context to the experience um, he also seems to do a lot of mediums and wides. Uh, he doesn't do a lot of close-ups, even when he when he's showing the uh, the fuel gauge switching over. Um, that's still like a maybe a medium close at the most. There's not a lot of shallow depth of field, though. Whenever he does use it, it's to obscure something that he doesn't really want you to see, like the the soldiers' uniforms and their faces. Um, he's using the shallow depth of field to to prevent that information. But otherwise, he's giving you as much information as he can because he's very carefully composing every shot so that he can maximize the, the IMAX format. I mean, that's an incredibly large format, and he wants to build an experience for the theater. I don't feel like we're getting that enough these days where filmmakers are specifically looking to give you an amazing experience in the movie theater, not just a good movie, but something that you want to buy a ticket for and line up early to go see like we, the IMAX and a lot of movie theaters don't give you assigned seating. So you have to show up early if you want to get a good seat. And I was there an hour early. Todd mm-hmm. was there an hour early. Like we were all there so that we could get the best seat that we could possibly find because we knew Christopher Nolan's going to give you an incredible experience. Um, and so he likes to give you as much context as you can. There's one, there's this really great dolly shot that I saw the first time and I was like, that's so freaking cool that he did this. It's a, you're on the pier and it's a dead on shot of Branagh with the pier directly behind him. We dolly to the left and it reveals all these soldiers that are sitting behind him. And then we kind of keep going and we lose most of the soldiers. And it's like, you did all this work. You have all these extras in the back for like a five second shot. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much work because you care about the experience and giving context and giving scale and immersing the audience as deeply as you possibly can, even though it probably cost you, you know, a hundred thousand dollars for that one (laughs) shot of five seconds. And, and then in the, uh, the final scene where you have Tom Hardy trying to get the gear down. Right. And that's just, Oh man, freaking intense because what makes it so much more intense is you have these very long shadows that are showing you where the wheels are in relation to the ground. Yes, yes. And so you have the context of how close you are, and that creates that extra layer of tension, like, oh, my God, he's almost on the ground right now. Yeah. Um, but pump if you harder, didn't have that shadow, harder. yeah, go faster. Um, but if you didn't have that context, you lose a lot of that tension. There's still yeah. some, but it's not to that same it's not heightened the yeah. same way as utilizing shadows. Like, yeah, or like, like in the not to talk about it too much, but in the Aviator, when he re- was making that fil- the film mm, in the film, right? And he realized, oh, for reference, you need clouds. You know, like it very similar to that, but mm-hmm. in a 
totally opposite way because you're talking about the ground. <laughs> That's rushing um, up at you. But ref- point of reference, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, overall, this was such an incredible experience. I, I would take one Dunkirk over a thousand Transformer movies just because I'm always going to pay a premium price to see an original movie. And I love Christopher Nolan for that. No matter what he's going to do next, I'm just excited he's out of the superhero movie business and he's back to give me more Inceptions, more Prestiges, more Interstellars, and more Dunkirks. I I have issues with the, the, the storytelling. Mostly, okay, so... So you, you prefer him writing with his brother? I, you know what? I thought I did. That was my instinct. So walking out of this, I was like, man, maybe his brother Jonathan is the structure and story guy. Um, so I went and checked the, uh, the IMDb uh-huh. and inception was written and directed by just by Christopher. Oh man. Yeah. Ew, so that's, that's a good one. I have absolutely no qualms with inception. With his writing. No. Nope. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's just this particular film. Um, there were just things that didn't really land that moment where they arrive, all those boats arrive to rescue them. There was just context that was missing because we're watching the whole time we're with Moonstone and we're seeing the boats that are with Moonstone, like a handful, uh, four or five boats, whatever, not enough to rescue 300,000, 400,000 people. And so it, that is undercutting my expectations for when the rescue actually shows up. My mind really quick jumped to, wait, we've been tracking with some of these boats and we've had no expectation that this is what was going to happen. Part of that, you might be able to chalk up to, there's a line I missed from Mark Rylance, the, uh, the Moonstone captain, where he says, there are other boats in the water. Um, but even in that, I'm like, I'm still kind of looking at the boats around him like, oh, is that what he's talking about? Because y'all are screwed. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't get any elation from that moment. I just uh-huh. got confusion. Um, and if... He could have told the story of more boats instead of a single boat. He could have. He also could have just withheld the boat story itself and told it through the eyes of the pilot. Like, maybe... Oh, he's fighting off... Yeah, maybe that, or maybe maybe it could just be he he relays some information to the ground, um, or maybe we don't touch any of that, and maybe uh, there's just that relay of... Boats from home are coming, um, yeah. and then we're we're feeling the pressure on the beach. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and overly second guess. You know, a, a master of his craft. Yeah. But I'm just saying that one specific moment really didn't land at all for me. Um, I just thought there was some um, some storytelling hiccups along the way. Gotcha. But I still think that moment with Tom Hardy at the end that did that completely. All three times landed. All three times landed. No pun intended. And I, th- I think I think a big reason is is like you were saying before, he gives you a little bit of what's going to happen, but not always. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like for example, when the plane went down in the water, when his his co pilot friend went down in the water, you just saw the plane go down. You didn't see him get out, and then you mm-hmm. saw the boat coming for it. So then, when you see it going down, you realize, oh man, when that plane went down, I didn't see him get out of the plane. Because Maybe what, he is going to die. And what I love about that that setup, uh, I forgot to make notes on this, but the the setup of that, right, is he goes down and he sticks his hand out and he waves. He waves and, and then Hardy waves. Yeah, he's like, okay, I'm relieved. I can move on now. Yeah. Um, and so we get a sense of relief that isn't justified once we experience that landing with that pilot. Exactly. And it's suddenly, oh, crap. We thought he was okay. Now he's not okay. Yeah. Is he? Is he going to be okay? And so, and it, yeah. And then it's the opposite at the end. Whenever Hardy's plane uh, um, dies and he's just gliding, and you think that's it for him, and then they cut to a different timeline, and there's a a a, a, a um, an enemy plane coming in, and you're thinking, oh, here we come, here we go again, and then he gets shot down by Hardy. You think, oh, okay, so this is this is where the timelines intersect and meet. Uh, but you didn't ex- you didn't at all expect that, and and it's 
It is a, such a great moment. Yeah. I mean, uh, when we were in the IMAX, people were cheering. Yes. You know, in yeah. that. It was it was just wonderful. Did they do that at 70 millimeter? Um, no. No? Okay. <laughs> well, they did in the IMAX a little bit. Uh, and it was it was fantastic. Or maybe they didn't, and it was just me. No, no, no. <laughs> no there were people cheering. Um, I mean, we were quiet, but we we were definitely like... I wasn't very in. quiet. I think I <laughs> cheered. Not? Okay. I, think, I was like, oh. I couldn't even hear it over my own, like, I guess, yeah. mental enthusiasm. It's just, it, yeah. It's it was perfect. incredible. Yeah. And I'm a big no talking during movies, but I was completely behind yeah. that <laughs> the moment. there. It was brilliant. Yeah. Oh. So were there any other moments that didn't land for you? Uh, or was that, was that really... Uh, yeah. I'd say that's probably it maybe. So, so, but it's, it's such a crucial moment of the film. That, yeah. Yeah. And I think it also still plays to maybe all the audio cues that we've been trained on. Mm-hmm. Um, not only my confusion of that moment, but the, the tension never went away. Really. You have a swollen music and a brief moment, I guess, but it's still kind of there. It's lurking and there's danger. So yeah, I don't know. All right. Cool. So what would you give this movie out of a 10? I would still say a seven out of 10 is fair. Okay. Um, an incredible experience. I'm, I'm glad he made it, but it's not going to be in my top five Nolan films. Yeah. I think, you know, a movie like inception, you could watch a bunch, like a whole lot just to learn a little bit more Mm -hmm. about like, what does this mean? What does that mean? But this movie, because it was, you know, a, true story it's probably more of a filmmaker's movie right like mm-hmm. if you watch this three or four or five times you're probably watching it for like how the hell did he get that shot yeah. or did he really sink a destroyer <laughs> you know like <laughs> um was that a model didn't look like it but who knows all of these or like how did he get these grandiose shots of like you know it looked like 20,000 guys on a beach were those all extras or was that CGI like you know all these things that's what I would watch this movie multiple times for I couldn't watch it necessarily multiple times for the experience quote unquote Mm. that we got the first time I just don't think that I would get that again yeah because there's nothing to figure out yeah it's just it's just an experience yeah it's just an experience you know what's coming after you've seen it the first time but that being said, you should see it a first yes. time. It, yeah. it is, and you should see it in a, on the biggest screen as close as you can for th- that time um, that you possibly can. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that wraps that up. Uh, you got a quick recommendation for the week? Um, I, I hold on. You, give me yours. So I was really close because of Branagh being in this. Uh, mm. I almost wanted to recommend his one of his films that took me by surprise, which was uh, Cinderella. Turned out to be a really good movie, actually. Really? Um, surprisingly. But I wanted to stay on a different theme, which was World War II, War, and Tom Hardy. So I'm going to recommend Band of Brothers. Nice. For those of you who still haven't seen it. I think that we... <laughs> Is that are you talking to me? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen Band of Brothers. I know. I know. I, I you know, there's just not there's not a not a ton of Spielberg films that I'm crazy about. I just go out on a limb and say it. I know everybody's gonna hate me, but nice. uh I mean I he's brilliant, don't get me wrong. Sure. But, but I love so Mark Rylance in this film was absolutely incredible. Um, and he's also obviously incredible with in Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was that was a uh, um, a Spielberg film. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. There's just aspects we can talk about it. I know. We, maybe we should. Maybe we should do one. Maybe. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, heck, uh, I'll recommend Jurassic Park. Nice. Why not? <laughs> For those of you who are still living under a fossilized rock. Uh, go see Jurassic Park. And it's probably even worth seeing again just because of how well it holds up. I mean, oh, man, absolutely. There's movies that are released today that aren't holding up. And that's that that speaks volumes about Spielberg just in that. Like a lot of his movies, I mean, let's go back and watch Indiana Jones. Right. Holds up. I mean, mm-hmm. most of them. Yep. Not all of them, but most of them. Yeah, he's brilliant. So next week, we have a special guest. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We do Clue. That's what we're going to cover next week. Tune in. I, I suspect we'll be discussing comedy and yeah. maybe Tim Curry a little bit. Um, probably mostly. Probably mostly Tim Curry. <laughs> yeah. But we're going we're gonna to be with the, uh, the legendary Joe Parsons from, uh, from uh, Master Pancake. Uh, he, which he does here at, at Alamo Draft House every f- Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he's every weekend, but he's most weekends. He's a founding member of Master Pancake, which if you don't know is if you've ever seen the old Mystery Science Theater 3000 uh, where you know they have characters who are watching this film and they just tell jokes during it, it's a live in-person version of that where everybody's telling jokes during a movie usually uh, a movie that's pretty that takes itself too seriously one of the first ones that i ever saw was point break and i was literally i was so close to peeing my pants i was laughing so so hard (laughs) and i love you know what uh i was gonna talk about her a little bit for this episode just because whenever i was talking about People are going to be sampling the sound. Uh, she's an incredible filmmaker. She's one of the best action filmmakers around today. And her new movie, Detroit, is coming out. I'm super excited about it. But something frustrated me with their latest trailer. She's sampling, or she's just borrowing straight out, the music from The Social Network. Oh, man. And that just rubs me so wrong because I love that soundtrack. Um, we should totally do The Social Network. Uh, in the near future. Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I, yeah, I can talk movie. about Trent Reznor. Yes. All day. All freaking day. Yeah. Um, don't forget to subscribe and review on iTunes. That's kind of a weird thing to be able to review it. You actually have to run a search in the podcast search box and pull us up that way. So search for the pestle P E S T L E um, and subscribe and give us a review. Uh, five stars. If you like us, don't review us. If you don't, <laughs> that's, that is super easy. There you go. You uh, just ask your question. Ask the question. Do I want to do this? Yay or nay? And then do nay. that. Um, but we super, super appreciate it. You can also see the show notes uh, at the pestlepodcast.com slash Dunkirk. We're going to link to a, an incredible story that our friend Joe showed us earlier about this viewing in Calgary where a veteran of Dunkirk showed up to the screening afterwards. You know, he's just floored by the experience and he had all these amazing things to say and he talked to the audience uh, people afterwards. It's a really great story. I'll link to it in the show notes. And Joe was able to relate to me that they're they're getting this guy in touch with Christopher Nolan himself, um, which is amazing. Not only that, there's still veterans from that, from that experience, from Dunkirk, but that they're they care enough and they're still invested. Like and, it, and it speaks volumes to the film. Yeah. I think that, that he actually and like thought it held, held water. Yep. And like, he was like, man, this was spot on. Dead on. Yeah. Wow. That's and awesome. Incredible. All right. Well, we'll leave you with a quote of the day too. Chris, this one's by Christopher Nolan. Every film should have its own world, a logic and feel to it that expands beyond the exact image that the audience is seeing. Well said. Love this guy. <laughs> All right, uh, that's it. This is Todd. This is Wes. We're signing off. Go watch some movies, guys. Mm-hmm.